Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by PTD Optics, helping churches live stream broadcast quality services on a budget. Visit PTD Optics slash church makeover by November 16th to win a complete live streaming makeover for your church. This is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Robert Nicholson joins us to discuss what's going on with religious freedom in Saudi Arabia. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm joined by my great co-host, our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Galley. And almost fisherman. No, you are a fisherman. It's I am a fisherman. pretty well established. Exactly. But I'm going fishing tomorrow. Clap. Golf Golf clap. <laughs> golf clap. <laughs> so I was late to the podcast. I need to tell everyone because I was browsing a website on where to fish in Southern Illinois. We've all been there. Who doesn't get lost? Pursuing their hobbies. At work. On Mark, I feel like time. people should also know, too, that like I've told you that I admire you for your hobbies. So sometimes people think I give you too hard of a time, but I've I said see. that to your face. You have, and you've actually asked to teach you some of them. Exactly. So. Ultimate sign of flattery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know which side your bread is buttered but on. No, I actually said. want to learn them. No, that's the thing about you. You are a very curious person. You've got a lot of uh, interest yourself. Oh, my gosh. Makes my head swim. <laughs> All right. Robert Nicholson is founder and executive director of the Philos Project, a leadership community dedicated to promoting positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. His advocacy focuses on spreading the vision of a multi-ethnic and multi-religious Middle East based on freedom and the rule of law. He is a publisher of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Welcome, Robert. Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Morgan. It's great to be here. Robert, how do you feel about fishing? I, you know, my, my father loves fishing. I, I never caught the bug. I'm sorry to say, Mark. You'll grow up into the full stature of our Lord, who who <laughs> liked, liked, well, maybe he wasn't a fisherman, but he liked to spend time with fishermen, so that's okay. Close enough, right? It's true. All right, let's talk about religious freedom in Saudi Arabia today, which I think Mark and I are excited to learn more about. So when it comes to religious freedom, is Saudi Arabia loosening up? After a recent visit to the Gulf Nation, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom Commissioner Johnny Moore suggested the country may be relaxing. In a trip to the capital, Riyadh, last week, Moore and other U.S. officials reported the country has reformed its religious police, once tasked with enforcing Sharia law on the streets and in homes, and has instituted new government programs to squash extremism. These reforms have followed the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam's pledge to modernize the country's Islam. He made those pledges last year. Since then, Mohammed has met with Archbishop of Canterbury, the Marianite Patriarch, and the Coptic Pope. Fewer than 5% of the 32 million people living in Saudi Arabia are Christians, and the majority of this community, the Christian community, that is, is from the Philippines. The government still does not sanction churches or any form of public worship by non-Muslims. 
So this week on Quick to Listen, we'll explore the history of Christianity in the region and the shape that the church is in today. So before we get into this, this podcast, again, is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And we're currently talking about our October issue, which has an article about trees. By Matthew Sleeth. And I met Matthew as he was writing a book on this topic from which this article comes. Whenever I listen to Matthew, I've only you know had occasion to sit down with him on a couple of occasions. But when he starts talking about the creation and God's presence in it and the gift of creation and the wonder of it, it's just a marvelous thing. So I really, I'm really glad we were able to get him to write for us on trees, a commonplace in our world, but he manages to make them uncommonly wonderful to think about. So I encourage you to get that issue and read that article. You know, I run our social media here at CT, and there's been a lot of praise for that article. So, yes, if you're looking for something, pretend that you're tired of politics. No one's actually tired of politics. Pretend you're tired of (laughs) politics and you want something to rejuvenate and refresh your soul. Recommend reading this article about trees. You can do that, again, by becoming a subscriber. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Mark, I wanted us to do a brief gut check about how we feel about what is at least being said about what's happening in Saudi Arabia right now. Like you said, I'm anxious to learn a little bit more about it because Saudi Arabia is a big blank in my mind, other than I know it has a, a reputation for being terribly repressive of other religions. The, the presence of so many Filipinos in uh, Saudi Arabia does complicate the problem. I, I did think it was interesting that he's had conversations with Anglicans and the Marianites and the Copts, but not the Catholics, who I'm assuming most Filipinos would be Catholic. So maybe that's next. Yeah, maybe we can get into that today for sure. Saudi is one of these countries that when they do something, I'm like, what is the agenda behind it? And we had an article last year titled, The Game of Thrones Christians Should Be Watching. That was written by my, the headline was written by my boss, headline writer extraordinaire Jeremy Weber. But it was about some of the palace intrigue that's gone on with why Saudi Arabia may possibly, may be reforming, and whether it was out of the goodness of their heart or if there were some ulterior motives going on. The one thing I do know about Saudi Arabia is that our country's government and Saudi Arabia have been really close, thick as thieves for a long time. And so at the same time, it does seem like the U.S. has not really ever like pushed Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you saw, Mark, but a couple of weeks ago, I want to say the Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia complained about human rights violations by Saudi Arabia, and they responded by shutting down the embassy there. So the U.S. has not really gotten in Saudi's face for that. For one, there's lots of reasons for that, of course. Traditionally, it's been oil has been one issue. But now we've had a guest on our show, uh, Bob Roberts, who has had a close personal relationship with an individual who's high up in the Saudi government. And this individual I've met upon a couple of occasions, and he would be a person who would be interested in, in liberalizing the religious laws in Saudi Arabia. He's very open to having conversations with other people of other faiths. He, I've been to a couple of conferences with him. So, so it, it is believable that there are forces in Saudi Arabia that want to do that. Robert, you're here to kind of shed some light on that situation for us today. I want to start a little bit with the history, though, of Christianity in Saudi. When do you know it first came to the region that we now call Saudi Arabia? Well, first of all, thank you both for having me and for talking about this really important and and timely topic. You know, sometimes people think of Saudi Arabia or the Middle East in general as just this sort of 
empty region of people who hate us uh, with no connection whatsoever to our life living here in America or in the West. And we know that our faith is actually not an American religion or even a European religion, but a Middle Eastern religion. Even though Saudi Arabia does seem like a black box for most people, uh, there were Arabs. If you go to the first few chapters of Acts and you read about what happened on the day of Pentecost, there were Arabs who were present, traders from the Arabian Peninsula who were in Jerusalem to see that miracle that happened there um, with the early church. Uh, we know the Apostle Paul, uh, upon seeing his vision on the road to Damascus, disappeared mysteriously for a few years in Arabia. Church uh, tradition tells us that St. Thomas, one of the apostles, was also very active as a missionary throughout the Arabian Peninsula, in addition to uh, Mesopotamia and India. And the first archaeological evidence we have as far as I know, is a church called the Jubail Church, which comes from the 4th century in Saudi Arabia, and just testifies to the fact that Christianity spread to the region quite quickly. And actually, there was a place um, called Najran, which was well known to be sort of the founding city for Christendom inside the Arabian Peninsula, and became famous throughout uh, the early modern world as uh, sort of a, you know, no pun intended, but Mecca for Christians who were living in that part of the region. There were even, if you can believe it, Arab tribes, Bedouin tribes that were Christian tribes before the arrival of Islam. So there was, up until the 7th century, quite a vibrant tradition of Christianity in and around the Arabian Peninsula, both what we would call Saudi Arabia, but also in parts of the peninsula like Yemen as well. I love this. That is amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Because I tend to think of Christianity of starting in Jamestown, for example. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do. I, I should clarify our magazine is called American Christianity Today. All right. Thank you. That's awesome. So, okay. So we have this vibrant community of Christianity that's alive and well in Arabia. And then we have the Prophet Muhammad and Islam begins to spread in the 7th century. Was it just overnight that we saw the disappearance of Christianity in the region or the almost disappearance or almost eradication of it? Uh, no, it wasn't. And actually, there was persecution that predated Islam as well. So in and among the Christians uh, living in the area were uh, not just Jews, but also pagan tribes. They were sort of all over uh, mixed in with, with everybody else in the region. And many of those tribes persecuted Christians in addition to some Zoroastrian elements that were sort of active in the peninsula from the Persian Empire, which wasn't too far away. But of course, the big the big watershed was the, the revelation that Muhammad uh, said he received uh, from heaven and his recruiting of sort of a large body of believers around him and this kind of explosion of uh, Islam, of course, inside Arabia, but also throughout the Middle East and, and really much of the known world. And early on, it became very clear that uh, Islam was meant to be a corrective. It was meant to say to uh, not just pagans, but to Jews and Christians, look, you know, you guys get some things right, but you're really missing the point. You guys have corrupted the pure faith, and Allah has given me uh, sort of a restored vision of what this faith ought to be, and you need to uh, come over to my side. So there was uh, persecution that began very softly at first, because, of course, Muhammad and his his followers were a minority amongst all of these other people. 
Um, but as the religion of Islam grew and its and its military power grew, people began to face lots of pressure. And actually, that city I mentioned to you, Najran, sent emissaries to meet with the prophet and his companions, you know, offering a you know a, a olive branch of peace. And there was a pact made, and things were okay for a little while. But by the time you get to the 10th century, there was really no active Christian community in the Arabian Peninsula whatsoever. They fled to what we would now call Iraq or Syria. Some of them went to uh, into Africa or to India. Uh, the pressure was just too great there in kind of the heart of Islam. And uh, many of them just said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go to other places. And so, you know, from that point until today, you really don't have any kind of Christian footprint in the Arabian Peninsula. You know, you have, may have remnants of churches like the one in Jabal that I mentioned, but in terms of active Christian community, you know, visible with churches and sort of community built around it, pretty much nothing ever since, uh, ever since the 10th century. Yeah, that's a good reminder. We, we uh, tend to love the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but in many periods and places of church history, martyrdom and persecution has led to the extinction of the church. So we shouldn't glibly assume that just because the church is being persecuted, it's really going to come out all okay in the end. I mean, we do have to stay concerned because things like this happen, where Christianity in an entire region is just completely wiped out. You know, there's a great book called The Lost History of Christianity uh, by Philip Jenkins, and it tells what the title suggests, this lost history of this whole kind of Christian world that we in the West have pretty much forgotten about in in Africa, in in Asia, all the way into China. And uh, you're right. We, we do think that, well, you know, persecution, it just leads to bigger and stronger Christianity. But in a lot of the places that Jenkins is talking about, it led to its complete extinction. Robert, I'm wondering, actually, if you can give us a sense of what has happened in this part of the world. I definitely am interested in it from a Christian perspective, but I don't even think many of us kind of know what was happening in the Middle East for this last millennium there, but there's just a lot of history in the Middle East that we don't know about. Basically, Islam as an ideology is exceptional in that it fuses religion and politics. And that's that's not my argument. That's the argument of a, there's a scholar over at the Brookings institution named uh, Shadi Hamid, who, who makes this case in a very compelling way. He says, look, you know, let's, we can't pretend that all religions are exactly the same. There is something unique about Islam, and it, it is this sort of fusion between church and state. And you see that reflected from the 7th century until really only about 100 years ago, when uh, the normative kind of order of the Middle East, it wasn't, it wasn't nation states the way that we have them now, you know, with Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, in Jordan, it was essentially a big uh, empire, an, an Islamic empire. Sometimes you had more than one, and they were rival empires. But you always had the sense that nations don't necessarily matter; they don't count. In fact, Muhammad was was trying very much to transcend the tribalism of the Arabian Peninsula and saying, "Look, you know, you may be from that tribe, you may be from this tribe, but we all are believers in the one God," and that was the message of Islam. So. There's something within Islam that is kind of antithetical by definition to nation states and the way that we think about them. And so for most of the last thousand years, it was empire. And for the last essentially 500 years of that, up until the early 20th century, it was the Ottoman Empire. So the Arabs were kind of in charge of Islam, let's put it that way, for the first 
few centuries and, and eventually the Turks migrating out of Central Asia, to make a long story short, seized power. And the biggest and the, and the best was the Ottoman Empire. And that collapsed after World War I uh, when they allied with, uh, with Germany and the Axis powers. So we, uh, after World War I, the, the winners of World War I, the Brits and the French, and to some extent the Americans, looked at this whole situation and working with, with people on the ground basically created the map of the Middle East that we know today, Iraq, Syria, these things. There is something to them in a way, but they are pretty much new creations of the last hundred years. Now, Saudi Arabia in particular has a very interesting history. The Brits were trying to defeat the Ottoman Empire, and one of their strategies was to kind of uh, attack them from below, attack them from their soft underbelly by using local Arab militias, you know, that basically on the idea that look, the Turks are oppressing you. You're not Turks, you're Arabs, you're second-class citizens in this Ottoman Empire. We're on your side. You know, fight with us and we'll help you overthrow the Turks. And some people within the Arabian Peninsula, uh, some big shots, heeded that call. And the, the most important one was the Sharif of Mecca, who was a big tribal chief in the Arabian Peninsula, threw in his lot with the British. That's the, the whole Lawrence of Arabia story. And indeed, they started to attack the Ottomans from the south, succeeded in taking uh, some really important territory. They took Damascus. And in response, the British made Sharif uh, Hussein the king of the Kingdom of Arabia, essentially. But shortly thereafter, that king was overthrown by uh, a renegade family from the deserts east of Mecca, and that was the Saud family. And Saudi Arabia is really the Arabia that the Saudi family controls, because Saudi Arabia is really just a big family. It's a massive, massive tribe, a mixture of tribes, thousands of people who are all part, part of the House of Saud. And their ancestors back in the 18th century basically made a deal with uh, some religious leaders some very extreme Muslims from followers of the of the uh, cleric uh, Ibn al-Wahhab, which is where we get the word Wahhabi from, you may have heard. And together, the Wahhabis and the Saudis overthrew the king that the British put, put in place. And ever since then, we've had Saudi Arabia, which is the Arabia controlled by the Saudis and their uh, kind of Wahhabi religious partners. It's a little bit complicated, but it's important to know that Saudi Arabia, in some sense, is a very revolutionary and very uh, even extra religious state uh, among the states of the Middle East. Yeah, so it's ironic that uh, a country with which we have good relations produced uh, that, that Wahhabism, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was a chief influence on Osama bin Laden? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, the, most of the attackers of 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. All of them were influenced by this Wahhabi, or sometimes they call it Salafi ideology, which is sort of an extreme monotheism that sees you know what they call the crusaders that's us uh, and the jews as kind of their ultimate enemies and people who must be opposed at, at all costs and yes it's al-qaeda comes from that and also isis more recently i'm glad that we have all this type of geopolitical stuff to kind of nuance and get into because it does help us you know distinguish what how saudi looks like from the rest of the region one of those other things that makes it so unique, which I think Mark and I touched on a little bit earlier, is that Saudi has a huge immigrant population. 
What's up with that, Robert? It's true. Huge, huge population. Some numbers put put the immigrant population as almost a third of the population of the country, which is the, the whole country, something like 35 million. And about a third of that are foreign foreign workers, foreign migrants. And it's, it's all about uh, oil. Uh, the Saudi regime came into power early in the 20th century. And just a few years later, oil was discovered in the Arabian Peninsula. And not just a few drops, one of the largest oil reserves in the entire world. And, you know, you think about the timing of that, you know, where we were at the sort of early to mid 20th century, you know, our the industrialization, the technological advances we were making. We, I say we, I mean really mankind in general, we needed energy almost more than anything else to power everything. Everything we did was based on energy. And here was this, you know, extremist puritanical regime that was in control of the largest supply of it. And so it led to this strange situation that both of you mentioned where the United States, you know, the champion of liberty and freedom and human rights in the world, makes an alliance with maybe the most oppressive regime on the planet, or certainly one of them. Uh, and at the beginning, it was it was about ensuring a free flow of oil, and that, of course, has remained very important throughout the years. As this 20th century progressed, Saudi Arabia also served kind of as a bulwark against some of the other, uh, let's call them bad Arab regimes of the region. Syria, Iraq, and Egypt was 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 very problematic for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia was kind of a a counterweight. You know, it was it was a country that balanced out some of the hostility that was coming from those other quarters, and it was in everyone's interest to keep keep things uh, stable. The foreign workers came essentially to service the energy industry. In the beginning, it was a, the people who were coming were you know very advanced sort of Western engineers and uh, oil. Uh, industrialists, you know, trying to get that industry up and running. But after a while, there was this massive need to staff these oil companies and the towns that built up around the oil fields. And much of that labor came from Southeast Asia. And the Philippines was was really one of the biggest countries of origin for these workers. And, and of course, as a country became extremely wealthy, a whole class of people, and wealthy isn't even the way to describe them. I mean, they're just uber, uber wealthy. There was a whole, there was an even uh, bigger need to service these people in their homes, um, you know, maintaining their garages and all of their, you know, recreational spots, et cetera. So you have this situation where this massive population uh, of foreign workers comes in who essentially have no rights. From what I understand, you're not allowed to become citizens, correct? Not allowed to become citizens. If you're not a Muslim, you're not allowed to practice your faith openly. If you're a Christian, there are no churches. There is no means for you to be a Christian publicly. You have to worship in your home privately. Uh, even sort of private gatherings of people are frowned upon. And up until very recently, there's there's a religious police that actually could sort of kick down your door and arrest you if you were leading any kind of serious body of believers in corporate worship. So it's really it's a terrible place to be a laborer. It's a awful place to be a Christian. And yet we have this uh, link, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and it's led to all kinds of dilemmas and paradoxes over the years. And I think in recent in recent years or recent months and even going forward into the coming years, these, these dilemmas are going to be uh, more and more problematic. 
for the United States as they try to square these completely different realities. These workers do have the right to leave, though, if they want? They do have the right to leave. That's right. But many of them, of course, are there to make money, and all of them, in fact, and are sending money back to their yeah their families and their country. There's a trade-off there that they think is worth it at this point, even though it's a pretty bad situation. It's true. Hey, this is Morgan from Quick to Listen. Today's episode is sponsored in part by the Filament Bible. And today I'm with Keith Williams of Tyndale House Publishers. Keith is one of the visionaries behind the Filament Bible, an all-new Bible print and digital reading experience. So the Filament Bible has been described as a, quote, print Bible that pairs seamlessly with smartphones or tablets. How does that work? Filament is a really simple, beautiful Bible. Like, we we made a print Bible that was exactly the print Bible we wanted to read from. Really simple and elegant, single column, uh, nothing to distract you when you just want to read the text of scripture. But we also wanted to figure out how can we bring all of these amazing resources in study Bibles and other sorts of Bible resources and bring that alongside a really excellent Bible reading experience. And that's where the smartphone and tablet comes in. When you're in the app, you just tap the camera, you show it the page number of the page that you're on in the filament Bible. And it recognizes that, it knows exactly what's on that page and dishes up study notes, devotionals, profiles, theme notes, interactive maps, and videos, all just for that one page you're looking at. You can learn more about the Filament Bible at filamentbible.com. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. So... In, in this history, this close history of the U.S. and Saudi, Mark and I were discussing a couple minutes ago whether or not there has been a time where the U.S. has put pressure on Saudi Arabia before for religious freedom issues. When has that happened before? What does that look like? Has it gotten them anywhere? With the exception of very recent years, we haven't said much to Saudi Arabia. For many people, the country, as we said, was a black box. People didn't really fully appreciate the extent of the repression in the country. Uh, there were fewer workers uh, in past years and people weren't paying as much attention. And now in the age of social media, all of these things are very visible. I can't tell you how many videos I've seen on, on Twitter, or on Facebook about just some of the awful things that are happening inside the country. So as consciousness has grown, the desire to do something has grown. And until now, it's been in the U.S.'s best interest to sort of leave well enough alone. And in addition to the energy interest that we have, we also these days have an interest, and this is really the most important uh, piece of this, at least geopolitically, is that the United States sees Saudi Arabia and a few other countries as well, but Saudi Arabia for sure as a counterweight to the Islamic Republic of Iran, which the United States considers the biggest state sponsor of terrorism 
and a destabilizing power in the Middle East. And so in an effort to balance out the power of Iran in the region, the U.S. has doubled down, in fact, in its relations with Saudi Arabia, which, of course, has given human rights advocates no no shortage of reasons to lash out at the Trump administration and really even the Obama administration before that. Yeah, I want to talk about Iran for a second, not to go too geopolitical here, but there was a piece last year in the New York Times that I thought was a hilarious headline. Speaking of more good headlines, it said, Iran and Saudi's latest power struggle, expanding rights for women. (laughs) And it (laughs) talked about how both of those countries have eased up on some of their pretty repressive measures on women. Obviously, the driving ban may have been the biggest example that came out from Saudi. Um, for, For listeners who don't know, too, from what I understand, they have a guardianship type policy, too, in Saudi where almost all major decisions in a woman's life, she has to kind of a vet with a male guardian before she, I'm assuming that's tied into some of this like religious stuff as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, is this loosening of religious freedom restrictions or some of these gender regulations that are also being loosened? Are they kind of motivated by what's going on in Iran? Or do we need to kind of at least see what's going on in that part of the world to understand them better? I think there is. It's funny. It's sort of like a, an arms race, but, you know, it's, it's the granting rights for oppressed minorities between these two countries. And they are both coming from different places. At You know, they both advocate for a very extreme version of Islam, one, one Sunni in the case of Saudi Arabia and one Shia in the case of Iran. Uh, Iran, on the, on the whole, has been better. There are Christians in Iran. There are Jews in Iran. There are very, very small numbers. Uh, many of them, most of them, the vast majority have fled since the Iranian Revolution of 1979. But there are churches. There's there's something there that you can see that says, look, this this society is not quite Saudi Arabia. Having said that, um, you know the way that Iran imprisons and executes journalists and people who dissent from the, the sort of the party line is is pretty atrocious as well. So both countries have, and I think it is in response to the, the birth of social media. Both countries are trying to show, hey, look, you know, guys, we're we're nice. We, you know, we're we're actually maybe the best friends of of minorities. A lot of what they do is try to couch their repression in terms that have to do with fighting terrorism. You know, we have to we have to restrict people because if we don't bad elements in our society will flourish and, and uh, you know, we'll have to we'll have to take even more extreme measures. Both countries play this sort of game, but they are making real reforms. Uh, the current prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has is, is made a number of these. He's kind of gotten famous in the last year or so, uh, as you said, uh, letting women drive, which is kind of a novel concept, right? Also letting women go to sporting events. And they had... Uh, uh, you know, they had a female singer on stage actually singing a song in front of a mixed crowd, which, you know, it seems kind of silly. But for Saudi Arabia, these are these are pretty big things. Critics will say that Mohammed bin Salman or MBS, as he's known, people call him MBS for short. Uh, all of these reforms are kind of it's lip service. It's it's eye, eye candy. It's trying to fool the West into thinking that you know, Saudi Arabia is changing when in reality, it's still the same old repressive authoritarian regime it's always been. I actually think both are true. Anytime a woman could, a woman can drive, 
in a country and they couldn't drive the day before, to me, that's good news. I'm not going to be picky about exactly how many other things are left undone. All of these things to me are good things. But I, but I also think it's true that Saudi Arabia is nowhere near being a beacon of, of human rights and has a long, long way to go. And if we're going to be in some kind of relationship with them, as we have been, we need to be pushing them a lot harder than we have been to do more. And I, you know, we don't, we're not trying to make the same, same mistakes. I think that we made in Iraq trying to you know, sort of drop our values into the middle East in a place where those values may or may not be actually native. But I think it's important to the extent we have leverage over Saudi Arabia to really be uh, pushing them even further in this direction. And I, I don't think uh, that we do enough at this point. All right. So MBS, what do we know about him? I know he's 32. That's about it that I know. He's younger than me and he's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, good for you. <laughs> he's uh, I think he's 32 or 33. Very young guy. He's the son of the king. He's actually people think he's the king, but he's a, he's a prince for a reason. The king is King Salman. He's bin Salman, the son of Salman. And he is a he's sort of a one man powerhouse. He came up quickly under his father, serving as his advisor um, in a number of different capacities, made his way to the Ministry of Defense before he was even 30 uh, and now is the crown prince and really the kind of the effective ruler of the kingdom. He's a visionary. Um, he has said all kinds of things that are pretty shocking, you know, recognizing the fact that Jews need a place to live in the Middle East, recognizing that Saudi Arabia is too religiously oppressive. He's, of course, done all of these reforms that we just talked about. And he's said that Saudi Arabia is unsustainable as a society. I think I think he's actually correct in that. You know, we've become something uh, close to energy independent. Uh, in recent years as United States of America trying to wean ourselves off of all of this Middle Eastern oil. And we've actually been successful. And we're in a place right now uh, where we don't need Saudi Arabia as much as we needed them before. And the Saudis know that because it's not just us. There are other countries around the world that are kind of getting their own legs when it comes to energy. So MBS is saying, look, if we don't kind of diversify our economy, and we don't start privatizing some of these businesses, this whole thing is just going to collapse. So he has this thing called Vision 2030, uh, referring to the year 2030, where he's trying to make all of these changes, social, economic, et cetera, to make the kingdom a sustainable entity. So he's very visionary. He's very ambitious. He's daring. He's also, I would say, reckless. Um, and there's this weird thing that's happening under MBS where even as the pace of, of moderation increases, at the same time, the pace of repression is increasing because MBS has been kind of rounding up some of his political opponents, many of whom are the good guys in this story, many of whom are calling for moderation, for liberalism, and he's doing all kinds of awful things to them, you know, imprisoning them, forcing them out of the country. The current uh, thing in the news, I'm not sure if you've seen it, there is a Saudi journalist who works for the Washington Post called Jamal Khashoggi, who just a few days ago on October 2nd, he's a critic of Saudi Arabia in his columns, says that Saudi needs to do much more. He went into the Saudi embassy in Istanbul to get some papers uh, related to an upcoming marriage for him and his fiance and vanished without a trace. You know, the mystery of Jamal Khashoggi is the mystery that's kind of rocking the Middle East right now. This liberal journalist, a critic of 
MBS, a critic of Saudi Arabia, walks into a Saudi embassy and vanishes. You know, there's all kinds of rumors that MBS, uh, you know, had him killed and chopped up and sort of flown out in bags. And, all, and nobody exactly knows what's happening. But if he is indeed dead, and many people do fear that he is, it would, it would kind of be par for the course. Because MBS knows that these reforms and all these changes he's trying to make, it's a very conservative society. Nobody wants anything to change. And he's going to get a lot of pressure both from the conservative elements of Saudi society, as well as the liberals who are saying you're not changing fast enough. So he's cracking down in a really ugly way, and uh, it may end up turning around inviting him as he tries to consolidate power over this sort of very, very um, conservative society. So we've talked a lot about the fact that most of the Christian population are immigrants. Is there any part of the Christian population in Saudi that are Saudi or are Arab? So there is a movement. And, you know, the story of Christian missions in the Middle East is just in general, I think, one of the most interesting stories that's happening right now. And it's happening right under our noses. For obvious reasons, much of it is not published. We don't know the half of it. You know, I encounter it quite a bit in my work. And it's really incredible. You know, the people who are coming to Christ in faraway corners of the Middle East, often through the work of undercover missionaries. And there's there's a lot of that going on, even in Saudi Arabia, as, as dangerous as that is. But especially uh, because of satellite television, there are these programs being broadcast all throughout the region. And I've known people who've worked on the back end of those stations answering the phones. You know, a number flashes at the bottom of the screen. You know, you want to know more about Jesus, you know, call our hotline. We'll, we'll sort of help disciple you. I've talked to people who work those phones and untold stories about what what God is doing in the region. And Saudi Arabia uh, is no different. It's happening more slowly. It is incredibly dangerous for people who want to convert from Islam to Christianity. It is, as in most parts of the Middle East, a crime punishable by death. But people are converting. And I've seen numbers that range from 50,000 to 100,000. But there is a not insignificant number of Muslims who are basically closet believers, worshiping together with, in some cases, these foreign workers, finding commonality in Christ. In, in this very dangerous situation that they all find themselves in. So I think that story is really just beginning. I think we're going to see a lot of fruit as these people uh, begin to fill the spaces in society that are opened by these reforms. I think we're going to see some of them come out of Saudi Arabia and begin doing even more work back toward that country. In some ways, you know, as a Christian, there's a lot of foreign policy calculus that we should be aware of and things that we should care about. But at the end of the day, if you know, if you believe the gospel is the power of God to all who believe, the, the most important thing that we can pray for is the success of those missionary efforts. Indeed. Um, it's one of the most frustrating stories for a journalist uh, because we really can't report on it. On the one hand, we can't report on it because sometimes the people there say, do not report on it. They tell us not to it endanger their work. We could report on it and make up names and places, but then that type of reporting tends to sound just kind of weird, and people have a hard time believing if it's really true or not. Uh, and then you can't source it. You can't source it. <laughs> so, so because we've heard this for years, and it's very encouraging, and it's very exciting, and I've had the same conversation with you, that people have been, who've been in that situation who are, what I would say, reliable witnesses, people you can trust. So it is very exciting, but it's frustrating that we can't know more. Robert, you sound pretty optimistic then about what 
Vision 2030 might mean for religious minorities in Saudi? Do you think that Christians in there will be allowed to have churches? Where where do you see the country being in 12 years on these types of religious freedom issues? I, you say I'm optimistic. I'm 51% optimistic, perhaps. I mean, I'm more <laughs> optimistic than I have been in the last hundred years, you know. <laughs> but uh, having said that, it's it's going to be slow going. And I think that there's a lot of what's happening now on the human rights front that concerns me, partially because uh, the Trump administration, like so many others before, seem willing to kind of pretend like nothing's happening over there. And I'm worried that in an effort to counter Iran and do all these other geopolitical things, we're going to let our you know, maybe call it our witness as as Americans be be tarnished. So I'm I'm sort of optimistic. I think we need to do a lot more. We can play a big role here. Like I said, the Saudis need us more than we need the Saudis at this point. The tables have turned from you know the 1970s oil embargo, and they basically held the energy resources over our head. We're not in that position anymore. We have a lot of influence, a lot of leverage. MBS is facing you know, criticism from every quarter. And I think we need to push and we need to push hard on this disappearing journalist, on the rights of these migrant workers. There's, there's some issues that are kind of especially ripe for uh, President Trump to push on. And I think I think he needs to push and use the relationship that he's built, and, you know, put it in a positive direction. So I, you know, in 12 years, where will we be? I don't know that we'll be much different from where we are now, even in the next 20 years. As I said, it's a very, very conservative society. Um, it's going to take a long time for it to change. And change, of course, can't be imposed from the top down. Change needs to come from the bottom up. It needs to be kind of indigenous to the culture. In fact, if reforms are imposed from the top and imposed too harshly, they will engineer this this counter-reaction and the pendulum will swing in exactly the opposite way. So I'm actually uh, worried about change coming too fast in a way because the population, if you poll Saudi citizens, you know, do you think for any Muslims who convert to Christianity, do you think they should be punished by death? I guarantee you, you're going to get something like 99% of the people saying yes. The vast majority, I mean, in Egypt, which is something of a more progressive society, that number is something like 85%. So I worry about kind of the latent religious energy being unleashed too quickly. But I do think that reforms are long overdue. I'm, I'm glad that people like Johnny are working on this issue. I think they need to hold their feet a little bit more to the fire. But I think they're they're generally pushing in the right direction. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, thank you so much for this great conversation, Robert. For people who have questions or commentary, you can find us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can send us an email at podcast at Christianity Today. Dot com. Now is the part of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that is bringing them joy. Mark has already gone because we talked about fishing. Just no, kidding. I, I haven't done it yet, so it hasn't brought me joy. Thinking about it, though. <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, what was your precious moment? Uh, probably this last week was building fairy houses with my grandchildren. Tell us more. Well, what you do is you just go into some wooded area. And whatever's at hand, sticks, stones, leaves, you build little houses. My granddaughter's just fascinated with this idea. And she has, this will be the door, and this is where the fairies can fly in, and this is where they can fly out. And it's just delightful to be with children who have an imagination like that. So, it is. Yeah. 
Especially when they're just like gripped and entertained by everything that's there. So I have pictures of the ferry house we built. If anyone in the listening audience wants to see it. <laughs> well, I'll look at them after this. Mark, where can people find you? I publish something called The Galley Report. You can get to it by going to christianitytoday.com slash The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I. I write a weekly newsletter in which I link to articles and make comments. All right, your turn, Robert. So it's it's far more worky than Mark's and less and less fun, but but no less important. I would say the uh, announcement that Nadia Murad was a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize was tremendous news for me. She, Nadia Murad, for those who don't know, was uh, is a Yazidi, one of this very uh, small, ancient sect of people, neither Christians, Jews, nor Muslims, sort of a pre-existing indigenous population of, of the Middle East and Iraq and Syria, horribly persecuted by ISIS. Women, uh, because they're not people of the book, according to Islam, all bets are off and their women can be traded and sold and bought. And all of that happened to Nadia Murad. She is this young woman, incredible survivor, somebody who's been uh, voicing the concerns of her own Yazidi community, uh, but also all of the religious minorities, including Christians uh, of the Middle East. And she was, uh, I think, rightly and, and finally awarded with this tremendous honor. And I, I really can't think of anyone who deserves it more. And if you care, as I do, and as we do at the Philos Project about pluralism in the Middle East, a voice like hers is uh, so welcomed and so appreciated. So that was my happy moment. Have you met her? I have, yes. She's a wonderful woman, and she's recently engaged to a, a wonderful young man as well. Wow. I, I know that the Yazidi women have really, really suffered under ISIS from everything I've read. Just the amount of trauma that they went through was kind of unparalleled by their community. So it was really special. I agree to see her being honored in that way and just the cause of the Yazidi women being brought to the surface as well. Absolutely. All right, Robert, where can people find you outside of this? So I am the founder and president of the Philos Project. It's a tremendous organization. I don't have time to talk about it. Our website is philosproject.org. We do trips to the Middle East. We do educational programs, leadership training, advocacy. It's a whole leadership community focused on exactly the kinds of issues we're talking about today. I also edit a journal, co-edit with my co-editor. Uh, the journal is called Providence. Providence is a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy, a place where we try to balance all of these uh, dilemmas that we're talking about when it comes to order and justice and stability and human rights. So you can uh, find Providence online. It's at providencemag.org. And we also print a quarterly publication for those old-fashioned types that want to hold it in their hand and look at it. So uh, and also you can follow me on Twitter. My name is uh, R.W. Nicholson underscore. And uh, I'm pretty active there. So if you're looking for a hot take on a Middle East issue, feel free to check me out. And I'd encourage the listeners to check out uh, Providence magazine. We get it here in the office and we get hundreds of magazines in the office. But it is one I will admit when I see it and look at the cover and the stories that are inside. It, it's one of the few that actually make me stop and take it back to my office. So it's a, it's a good journal. High praise from Mark. All right. My precious moment is kind of pitiful, but I finally read a book this week and I hadn't read a book in like three weeks or four weeks. So I you know that's you, really you bad. You start and finish a book in a week? I finished it in a weekend. I mean, I was on a plane a lot, so I had a bunch of time to actually read. It's a great book. Most people that listen to the podcast know I've been doing this project where I read books only by or about Native Americans this year. 
I read a book this weekend called City Indian, Native American Activism in Chicago, 1893 to 1934. And I honestly do not know much about urban Indian organizations, institutions, politics. In particular, this book was really interested in how Native Americans represented themselves in the Columbia's World Fair, which is what happened in 1893, and the Century of Progress Fair, which happened in the beginning of the 1930s, and about how those fairs kind of played seminal roles in bringing the community together or revealing the divisions that it had. And I really appreciate it, too, obviously, the fact that I live in Chicago, and so I could kind of get a chance to know what was going on in Chicago politics at this time through a Native American lens. Anyway, people can keep up with me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, which is where we truly appreciate when you rate and review the show there. You can also get the podcast most everywhere else that you get your podcasts. You can support this podcast as well by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. We will see you all next week.